welcome to this episode of Tell Me More as we unpack with Dr. Dennis Wiles his sermon from 1 Corinthians 6 on sexual purity. And we do talk about orthodox views of sexuality in the Bible, but we also talk about how then do we live in a society as Christians and look like Jesus and love our neighbors. And so it's an interesting conversation, and I hope that you join us and enjoy it. And here we go. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm back in the podcast studio of First Baptist Arlington with Dr. Dennis Wiles. I'm Katie Reed Hodges, our Minister of Congregational Life, and this is a podcast where I ask the pastor to tell me more about the sermon that he preached the Sunday prior. And so here we are on Monday morning, and you have just preached a pretty long and thorough sermon on human sexuality. Correct. Yes. And it was well done, I think, in terms of just layout and thoughtfulness, and uh, obviously you worked hard on it large scripture, et cetera, et cetera. But it does leave us, I think, a really, it's a prime sermon for Tell Me More. Yes. Because there are so. plenty of things. And even I've actually, I got, uh, I saw some Facebook comments about like, be neat if you talked more about this. I got a text about what if we go this way with it. So people are, in, are thinking through it mm-hmm. and engaged in it. And I think we could go, we could, this podcast could be very long. <laughs> we could go, could a lot of, it could go a lot of different directions. Uh, but we'll try to keep it on the rails. It could also be really short. Tell me more. Are you sure? Are you sure? No, you actually, I think I heard enough. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. See you next week. Oh, <laughs> but uh, let's let's. Okay, I think there's a lot of ways to go with this. But why don't we kind of walk through at least the? I think your sermon was laid out well, mm-hmm. and so I'll go through a few of those things and ask you, and you tell us whatever you want, of course, because okay. it's yours. But <laughs> I think for those listening, and if you listened yesterday or we're, we're at church, we've kind of we're starting with this baseline reality, that for our church and this moderate existence, that we still ascribe to an orthodox view of human sexuality. Correct. Which for you, you want to describe what you mean by that? Tell us what you think that is. Yes. And thank you for that, Katie. Yes, we still uh, believe that the historic orthodox view on human sexuality is um, um, is still um, worth considering. It's still what we embrace. And uh, the whole idea that God uh, is the creator of everything and that God created human beings. We believe God created human beings, male and female, mm-hmm. and gave human beings the responsibility of bearing his image in this world. And uh, that he gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply mm-hmm. and co-rule with him over his creation. And so he created human beings with the ability to produce offspring, further image bearers, and the we believe that the best way that is done is through marriage and that marriage is between a man and a woman and that the that is how the family is formed. And then that uh, you live out this gift of human sexuality, which is uh, an expression of intimacy. It is um, the path to procreation. It is the way we form families that you best live that out through marriage. And that um, that means that the expression of human sexuality um, is limited to marriage. And even though we're all sexual creatures and we certainly have the, the ability to engage sexually in pretty much any way we want mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. but the Lord, as we understand it, has placed boundaries, if you will, on it, which I believe are for our own good and is an expression of his will. And so we would say that, um, that human sexuality is something that is a gift from God. We acknowledge it and embrace it. But we also believe that marriage is the path for it to be fully expressed and that that gift of intimacy in some ways, yes, it's unparalleled in other human relationships, Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the be-all, end-all either, that uh, we're not just sexual creatures. 
we are creatures mm-hmm. and we find our full identity in our relationship with God through his son, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, okay. That's a pretty succinct version <laughs> of a lot of church history, right. a lot of centuries mm-hmm. of orthodox views mm-hmm. of sexuality. And mm-hmm. it is bigger than just homosexuality. Correct. That really is a one of many parts to this conversation. Absolutely. But even to say in, in the 21st century that we really still believe that sex is designed for marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. And so ideally you just one partner. That's your whole correct. life. That is correct. Is already kind of that is we could unpack just that. That would be out of step. Um, you know, sure. When, and and really I would tell you that my understanding of of the challenges that we face, the core issue that I think Paul was facing, um, with the church being located in Corinth and just being a part of the ancient world, the core issue is really idolatry. Mm-hmm. And that is the you know, the um the willingness to place something other than God on the throne of our lives. Mm-hmm. Very tempting in the ancient world, very um, apparent in the ancient world because you had all these temples, particularly right. in a town like Corinth. A lot of idol worship. Yeah, so, you know, it was, Everywhere. It was pretty Rampant. apparent. And, mm-hmm. and it was obvious if you were doing it. Mm-hmm. It's less obvious today for us because we don't really have pagan temples per se. Yeah, not many people have idol in in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Idols set up in their Correct. home, their prayer closets, right. whatever that might be. Right, mm-hmm. not like they're praying to... Artemis, you know, right. or engaging in some cultic activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but the danger is just as real. And that's, I think, putting ourselves on the throne of our lives. And and we live in an era where self, if you will, is celebrated and it is it is the ultimate expression of humanity. And so if if self is going to rule, well, then all kinds of aberrations are going to ensue from that. And mm-hmm. just certainly in the realm of sexuality is where you see it flaunted in many ways today. Uh, but there, I mean, my goodness, the whole God of materialism, you know, and power and greed. And I mean, those are those are powerful forces as mm-hmm. well. Yep. You know, sometimes they're connected to sexuality because there's a lot of sexual expression where domination is kind of what I mean by that is you, you, you use power, if you will, in the sexual realm. That's very common in this whole lust for greed and power and mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. So, but again, to me, that is all that is is the fruit of idolatry. That's how I see it. And, um, but, you know, I think that human sexuality, to me, we we have what I would consider a rich theological history and heritage to draw from that I think is still valid today. So, and I think that's the the argument, or the I think that's where people have to come with us that this might be still relevant today. Mm-hmm. That it's not mm-hmm. just occasional, like we talked about last week, right. for just the situation in Corinth, mm-hmm. but this is a universal, right. applicable, timeless truth. For Correct. God. And mm-hmm. I don't want to spend too much time in here convincing mm-hmm. people, right? Because I think one, if they're listening, they're part of our community. I don't know if they need right. convincing that it's relevant. Correct. I, I think uh, they're they're probably with us in in the biblical nature of it mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. most part. Right. I'd agree so, with that. I won't keep out there. Although mm-hmm. I, I want to get toward, I'm going to skip a step, but the, the how then shall we live right. part. I think mm-hmm. that's the, really what our church is thinking mm-hmm. about. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then how do we love our neighbor? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. What does it do? But before we get there, mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about scripture because I thought one thing that was interesting that you talked about yesterday is you did pull a little bit of the Old Testament. You pulled mm-hmm. Leviticus, mm-hmm. which I understand a lot of the critique from the outside, which is like, why would we quote such an outdated document where other imperatives in Leviticus right next to them are things we would never worry about, like mixing foods, eating right. shellfish, Correct. things like that. Mm-hmm. We, My cloth can be mm-hmm. unmatching or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
But then you have this line about homosexuality, right. and all of a sudden we're like, well, that one we're going to hold on to, <laughs> right. you know. And I think it can <laughs> be hip- our narrative. Yeah. It can feel really hypocritical mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. we don't explain it well, mm-hmm. or it, some people do truly use it out of context. I think mm-hmm. so. But yesterday, mm-hmm. you you tied it to you're you're claiming that Paul in in what we're looking at First Corinthians mm-hmm. six uses like. A transliteration, or he kind of links when he's talking about sexuality mm-hmm. back to Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about mm-hmm. that? Because I think that that makes Leviticus relevant in this conversation. Right. Well, when you think about the Apostle Paul living in the first century, and um, and so he is in Ephesus, and he had spent a year and a half in Corinth, okay, on, on a, his second missionary journey. Now he's in Ephesus, and he is he has received messages about Corinth, okay? So he's concerned about the church there. So he decides to write, he decides to write letters to them. We know that he wrote a letter that we no longer have, um, but then he writes this letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Well, I want you to think with me for just a second about Paul. Who was Paul mm-hmm. and what were the influences in Paul's life? Where did Paul look for um, look to? What did he look to for authority? Mm-hmm. Well, for Paul, it would have been the Scripture. So that's why you find in Paul's writings, you know, it is written. Mm-hmm. It is written. He he is uh, his his um, writings across the New Testament are laced with Old Testament mm-hmm. references. And we talk about the Scriptures of the Old Testament for him. What would that have looked like? You know, before the New Testament was written, what would right. he have had access he, to? He, he would have certainly what, the Pentateuch. Right. Certainly the what what I would consider the bulk of what we would consider to be the Old Testament. He would have access. He to. would have that, particularly okay. the Psalms. You know, the the scrolls of Isaiah, um, the uh, the Pentateuch for sure. Um, I would say the entire Old Testament. But you know, in the synagogues. You know, they had these, usually they managed these scrolls. And uh, so depending upon how the readings went during the year, you know, various texts were normally read from. So you have a reading from the from the law, you'll have a reading from the writings, you'll have a reading from the prophets, mm-hmm. you'll have the reading from the wisdom literature. So he's pretty cognizant of all of okay. this. It's helpful. And, uh, and, he is a, and he is a Jewish theologian. Now, he lives in a Greek world, a Greek and Roman world. As we call it the Greco-Roman world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is a, he's he's a Roman citizen. He's certainly trained in the... Um, I would say in the educational system of the day, we've talked about that already. Mm-hmm. Tarsus was known yep. as an educational center. So Paul's an intelligent person, but his theological perspective is for sure Jewish in nature. Mm-hmm. And you find that in all of his writings. So I would not, why would I be surprised that when Paul is writing to Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, and they're dealing with some um, really challenges toward paganism that are finding expression sexually? Mm-hmm. Um, well, then Paul turns his attention to the law, mm-hmm. particularly the book of Leviticus. And I think the reason for that is Leviticus, what we would call Leviticus 18 today. Paul didn't have chapters and <laughs> verses in his day. Um, it would have been really convenient for him, um, but we do. Yeah, so he just has to say, as it is written, uh, write as, the whole as it is written, thing. That's right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. But Leviticus 18 is, is appropriate for us because in Leviticus 18, God speaks a word to Israel that it it has more of a universal feel to it. And he even says these particular behaviors are taking place in Canaan right now. Mm. So if you go to Canaan, in other words, you go to the promised land, and if you live this way, here's what you need to know. I've already judged the people in Canaan for living this way. Mm. I've already um, punished them, if you will, and I'm going to punish them even further by driving them out. And if you get there and you do this, if you ascribe to these very same sexual aberrations, I'm going to drive you out also. Mm-hmm. We don't have examples in the Scripture where God punishes um, uh, 
uh, folks outside of Israel because they don't ascribe to Israel's dietary laws, like mm -hmm. you just mentioned, like shellfish and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. We don't have examples of God judging people outside of Israel for not ascribing to the clothing laws or mm -hmm. to those uh, those kinds of things, mm -hmm. purification laws. Yeah. We do have evidence, though, of God punishing people outside of Israel for their immorality. Mm -hmm. And so Leviticus 18 has a more timeless feel to it because it addresses immoral behavior that God says he just condemns in general, no matter who is guilty of it. Mm -hmm. Paul takes that text and then baptizes it, if you will, mm. and puts it in the church at Corinth and says, yeah. let me just remind you, okay? And the reason we know that is because when Paul was reading what you and I would call the Old Testament, there's pretty much, I don't think there's any question, he was reading the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, mm -hmm. which would be known as the, as the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. That was really the scripture of the church. So Paul's reading Leviticus which 18 would in Greek. In, I mean, would already be in Greek. Correct. In terms of, because we're talking about him transliterating this word. That's correct. He would have probably seen the word written, That's right. written in So Greek in other words, already. there's actually two words in Leviticus, and Paul made one word out of it. Paul okay. took the two words in Greek and, Greek and, com and compressed them into mm -hmm. one word. Because uh, arsenikoitas, the first time we've ever seen that word in the Greek language ever written. So even and in the Septuagint, it's not written not like in, that. No, it's not written that way. It's written as two words. Okay. So Paul takes it and actually coins a term. And so if you if you had any familiarity with Leviticus, mm -hmm. particularly the moral code of Leviticus, you would have instantly recognized Paul's taking this out of Leviticus. There's mm -hmm. just no question about that. And scholars today agree with that. Even scholars who don't agree with Paul's conclusion agree mm -hmm. this is, that that is this where it came from. So, so I think it's very relevant to our conversation. Yeah. So it's a, it's a and yeah. and the cool thing about I say cool, the interesting thing is <laughs> yeah. that very text it's cool in Leviticus. If you're a scholar. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. For the for nerdy for the, types for on the Monday morning. Okay, sorry. It's cool. <laughs> but um, no, I'm the, just the thing is, it comes from a passage in Leviticus mm -hmm. that obviously has universal implications. In other words, it doesn't come from the right of purification for priests, or it doesn't come from the dietary sections of, of the law, all of which have validity. Obviously, God had a reason for all of that. Mm -hmm. But it comes from something that God says, I'm even condemning this in the pagan world, hmm. not just in the Jewish family. So I think Paul theologically is drawn from that. And then practically, he's drawing from it because he's making a point that in Corinth, he knows that some of the very same things that were happening in Canaan hmm. centuries earlier are mm -hmm. happening there in Corinth. And he wants, just like he would have he would have believed that when the Jews got to the promised land, they would have abstained from those activities. He's challenging the church to do the same thing in Corinth. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good, I think that's very helpful for me mm -hmm. to think about bridging that mm -hmm. narrative. Because right. then you have this overarching message of right. the whole scriptures, right. really. Which also demonstrates... Um, the fact that we have to develop skills hermeneutically. In other words, we've got to learn how to interpret the which Scripture. Which is part of our goal is, for this study. Right. One of the reasons we're doing this mm -hmm. is to be able to to think through the layers of the text and 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 the theological interpretive history mm -hmm. and and determine, okay, what, what really is timeless from this and what is the church embraced as timeless? Mm -hmm. And um, and so uh, Paul, I think, recognized that was already embraced as timeless mm -hmm. by the Jews, mm -hmm. and, and certainly he being a Jewish theologian in his day. Um, he, and that's why I think he didn't draw from texts that they would have recognized as being only applicable to Jews, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. <clears throat> I think I think it, it validates a lot mm -hmm. of it. 
And of course, there are other New Testament scriptures that you quoted that are sure, more, absolutely. they don't need as much mind. That's in. right. But I think that's an interesting... Yeah. When it, the text says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, Hebrews 13. Well, that's a little more straightforward. Yeah, we don't have to unpack that one. I'll tell me more. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's but, a good, it's just interesting right. to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't learn that in seminary. I'm sure yeah. somebody probably tried, probably tried to teach it to me, but I didn't pick that. I don't remember it eight years <laughs> yeah. later or whatever. Right. But okay, well, I think the most... I'm projecting, but I think for the listener, for this, our church member, mm-hmm. they don't need to be convinced. They're kind of thinking, yeah, I, I understand an orthodox view of scripture, mm-hmm. but I'm looking at my friends, my family mm-hmm. relationships, mm-hmm. the world around me, and I'm not quite sure what to do then. Because mm-hmm. I can say one thing, but how do I live it out? Mm-hmm. And what does it look like to love like Jesus mm-hmm. with with neighbors, friends, people in the, ch- in the church and outside of the church mm-hmm. that think differently on this issue, maybe act differently? Mm-hmm. And so how are we agents of... Jesus, the Jesus way, right. while still living in America today. Mm-hmm. And we're not isolationists and we're not mm-hmm. going to remove ourselves. So mm-hmm. you walked through three different things, which I think are helpful, but mm-hmm. I would love to hear more mm-hmm. about what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. And we can acknowledge already, there's no, if we had a textbook for this, we'd all go do it. That's right. And it's very nuanced and there's a lot of gray, mm-hmm. but you can isn't, isn't that awesome that that's how it is? In other words, you're... Yeah. What I love about this whole Christian thing um, is that there's enough uh, prescription to give us the skeleton. Okay, mm-hmm. there's enough um, there's enough core understanding to give us the structure that we need that gives us stability and strength and 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 shape and form and all that. But then we add the flesh to it. We, we've got to decide in our generation. Okay, all right. I know I believe this right here, but how do I live this out in my generation, in my and in my cultural context? That's the beauty of it to me. I love that about God. I love that, uh, you know, God doesn't just only say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, always do this, always do that. Mm -hmm. You have enough of that, like I said, to build the skeleton, the structure. But there's so much other, Katie, where we've got to go, hmm, okay, I'm looking at this and this doesn't seem consistent. There's dissonance between what I believe and what this is. But this is a real human being. And it's a real human being that I love, or mm-hmm. it's a real human being that I think I need to get to know. Well, how do I how do I do this? Yeah. So that's a part of the beauty of it to me, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. And it is not. I mean, you may I may be stealing your thunder, but it's not a list of do's and don'ts right. in terms of all the way down, mm-hmm. or we wouldn't mm-hmm. we would be robots. But also, it is a discernment of the Holy Spirit in the moment. Often, mm-hmm. that's right. You know, when that's. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to steal what you're going right. to say. So, okay, let's walk through these three. One, conviction with compassion. Correct. Is that right? Did yes. I get that right? You got conviction it. with compassion. So it sounds really wise, doesn't it? It does. You come up with that? <laughs> well, I think I did, but okay. I don't know. Yeah, you read so much. That could be, you could have soaked that in from somebody uh-huh. else. But so obviously we have our core convictions, mm-hmm. but we live life as a person with compassion. Correct. You said Jesus did that really well. That's right. But tell me more about what you think that looks like in the day to day. Well, first of all, what I would say is you have to have conviction. Hmm. Okay. So that's my first challenge and admonition. So you need to, to know what you, you believe. You need to know what you believe, right, which is a part of what I was trying to accomplish yesterday. Let me show you how I arrived at what I believe. Mm-hmm. That's really yesterday's sermon to me had some biographical feel to it, even though I didn't tell it that way. Yeah. But if you're paying attention, um, I mean, I'm a church historian. I've spent a lot of time yeah. studying the history of Christianity. And so, um, you know, and plus I've been a pastor for a long time. And uh, so it was it was biographical in a sense that, where you didn't necessarily hear that in me, but I was walking you through how the church and me personally have gotten to this place of, con- of, of belief. Hmm. So first of all, have some conviction, decide what you believe. Well, that's going to, that's going to require something out of all of us. We've got, that's why we're learning these hermeneutical skills and got to decide what you really believe about things. So that's first. But then second, um, there's a way to live that out. You know, again, 
um, when when we meet someone, um, we're not skeletons hugging them, you know. So it's not just our convictions. That's not the only thing that defines us. Our convictions are a part of who we are. Um, but the compassion to me is the is where we connect with other people. And that's why I think we have to look at Jesus. I, I even pointed out Paul yesterday. I mean, my goodness, 1 Corinthians has some hard texts in it, but also has 1 Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. So I don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that Paul said, man, get all this right and have love, and you don't have love. Well, then you've, you've lost already. Yeah. You've messed the whole thing mm-hmm. up. So well, the, the, the cool thing again is, God's created us with the capacity to love people and to be mm-hmm. patient with people and and to listen to people and, and to look at them and learn from them. And so compassion is something that for a Christian ought to almost just come naturally, that when we hear people, we may disagree with their conclusions. We may disagree with their lifestyle, but our first our first step in that relationship is not um, not the skeleton. That's not the first thing they receive. Mm-hmm. The first thing they receive is the fleshy you know, material that's on top of that skeleton. So that's where we start. Now, if they push hard enough, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if, mm-hmm. if the pushback is, is deep enough, well, then you're going to get to my, you're going to get to my bones mm-hmm. and then I'm going to go, oh, okay, well, actually that's, that's far as I can go mm-hmm. here. But my goodness, there's a long way between my initial encounter with people and my ability to have a relationship with someone before you ever get to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Before you ever need to share, yeah, before show you ever your cards. Get, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't have to do that. Now, the thing is, we're living in a free society, and so it's like we've got multiple conversations going on all at one time. Mm-hmm. And we've got to, we have to learn how to discern the difference between me addressing something out in my culture and me sitting down talking with someone over coffee. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different things, yep. you know. And mm-hmm. so, if I'm sitting, if I'm having a conversation in my culture, and and I'm asked as a pastor, "What do you believe about homosexuality?" Mm-hmm. Well. If it's got, if it has to be a succinct answer, what do you believe about human sexuality? Mm-hmm. Well, you're probably going to get the, a little more of the skeleton. You're going to get your convictions mm-hmm. because they're asking you that. That's right. Yeah. But if I'm sitting down with someone who is telling me, okay, Pastor, I want to tell you something. I've got these desires inside of me, and I just think they're natural, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I like them, and I'm living them out. Mm-hmm. My response is not going to be my skeleton. That's yep. not how it works. You might not start with the Bible says. Uh, no, it's mm-hmm. more of well. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, how do, how does that feel? Well, how does that work for you? Mm-hmm. Describe to me what's going on there. Well, tell me about the people around you and how it affects them. And mm-hmm. and let me. I just want to listen and learn. And and so now, if if they get to the point and say, well, what do you think about this particular lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Well, then that opens the door for me. Yep. You know, to share a word with them. But it doesn't have to be the first step, Correct. the, first, the yeah. lead foot. I mean, surely I'm smart enough to hold multiple things in tension all at one time. <laughs> I think Dennis Wiles is. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. the cultural conversation is one thing. I have to make decisions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a board member at Baylor University. I'm on the board of regents at Baylor. Well, at Baylor, sometimes we deal with issues that are very complex because you've got 15,000 mm-hmm. students who are young adults who are dealing with just about everything you can imagine. And so we're trying to have enough guardrails in place to where people aren't falling off into canyons, Mm -hmm. but there's a whole lot of room to allow people to work through their own personal journey academically and and intellectually Mm -hmm. and socially and Mm -hmm. relationally and theologically. And so, you know, I I feel a lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. there. So I've got core convictions that are expressed in appropriate places. There's a whole lot of compassion that goes with it. And that gets complex, too, as being a board, a board member at a university versus their senior pastor. That is I mean, correct. I mean, those are two different Absolutely. roles in their lives. That's what I mean. Surely 
surely I'm smart enough to hold all these things in tension mm-hmm. and, to, and to engage in these different conversations. I don't have to be a cultural crusader in my personal relationships or in my family. Mm-hmm. In fact, I don't think I'm supposed to be. I hope <laughs> not. Know? I mean, I'm not a big fan of fighting these culture yeah, wars. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to— I don't think we have to. Yeah, to, to state what you believe on a broad scale— but but that's not where I live. I don't mm-hmm. I don't live culturally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I live relationally. There it is. You know that's good. Well, we appreciate that about you. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to follow a pastor who wants to fight every culture war. Yeah, yeah. I just don't have it in me. I feel like you're just being the world's too broken, blown in the sails. Uh, the of world's too lost yeah. for another angry voice. My goodness, there are enough angry voices right now. Yep. And uh, Jesus, Jesus reserved anger for some really very small moments mm-hmm. in his life. And mostly for religious leaders. Uh, yeah, well, unfortunately, let, let it was it, usually angry with people like let me. Let us hear that. <laughs> okay, the second one I think is very interesting, and mm-hmm. I do have some questions on it. You said condemning people is not our job. That's right. And I, while I agree, absolutely, mm-hmm. we are not ones to condemn. Certainly, we don't have the power to condemn in terms of someone's – I don't get to say if someone has a relationship with God. I don't get to say if they are right with God, how their eternity is affected, certainly. But there is this sense in which – I don't want to be judgmental, but I do have the Spirit of God within me that's, that's right. discerning, and Absolutely. you could even call it judging. Mm-hmm. So, I want would you tell us more about where you think that where do we belong on that spectrum of mm-hmm. discernment? In, in we talk, there's a level of discernment in church leadership, even mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. you put on committees, who right. you let lead, and that does mm-hmm. it's not judging, it's not condemning, that's correct. But there is something they're all related. So, we right. talk more about that. Yeah, when I, I I guess I would say I think words have meaning. So, mm-hmm. when I think of condemnation. Um, I think there are two prongs to condemnation. Okay. It's perfectly appropriate to condemn behaviors. Hmm. Okay. So for example, if 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 someone came to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about killing my wife. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. First of all, you need to understand we're going to radically condemn that behavior. Okay. So condemning behaviors is a part of uh, our responsibility as human beings living in a society. And uh, certainly as Christians, there are certain behaviors we abhor, and we're going to condemn them. That's different, though, than condemning individuals, okay? And so what I meant Sunday was that um, we, to me, sometimes we can rush really quickly to condemning people, and it feels easy to do right now. And we can just write them off, marginalize them, categorize them, and dismiss them. Well, that's very condemning to me. Um, and so there's a difference between exercising discernment, though, with people. So condemnation to me, I'm fine with saying we condemn behaviors. I totally disagree with condemning people. When it comes to people, it's discernment. And if you want to call it being judgmental, I, I'm okay with that. It's just that word feels pejorative and right. it has a negative con- yeah. so connotation. Yeah, let's put a better word in this place. I think discernment Discerning. is better. Okay. So a part of my responsibility as a Christian leader is to practice discernment. And so that means I've got multiple layers of that and levels of that. So if I want to have, so for example, someone wants to join First Baptist Arlington, every member of First Baptist Arlington is a sinner, okay? And so the only requirement we have for you is that you be a sinner saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and you've decided you want to follow Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, you agree to be baptized as a believer, and you say you would like to become a part of First Baptist Arlington, then you can do that. And we have people from all walks of life. Absolutely. Now, if you then decide you want to be a leader at First Baptist Arlington, well, that's where the process of discernment begins. Mm -hmm. So, for example, let's say that you're homosexual and you're living a homosexual lifestyle. Well, the way we interpret the Scripture, we don't believe that is consistent with the Scripture. 
as I've talked about that Sunday morning. If you say, well, I'm a polygamist or I'm a, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, pick something. Yeah, we do. I, I think it is helpful to not single it out. Yeah. I mean, for this, for this things. conversation, Absolutely. of course. Let's say you're in, but we you're can in a, say you're, let's in, say you're in an adulter affair. or yeah. let's say you're living, you're living together outside the bonds of marriage yeah. or let's, you know, whatever. These are all things that we would say. Absolutely. No. Say, okay, you know what? You're still a member of the church. You've made a decision to join us, but now you've, now you've become a part of an accountable relationship with us. So we're not going to allow you to progress into leadership until we address some of these very issues in mm-hmm. your life right now. Mm-hmm. It can get very complex. I understand that. But that's practicing discernment. So discernment also has to do in my own personal life, not just my life in the church. So I may have I've got layers of friends. I've got levels of friendship and levels of intimacy. And there are people on the periphery of my life. There are people who are kind of in the sphere of my life who live lifestyles very differently than I do. And they are my friends. Some of them are in my family, and we're connected, and we relate, and we do things together, and we we have holidays together. We have, you know, we go to ball games together. Mm-hmm. A lot of things that we may do. But when it comes to being more personally, intimately connected to me, in the council of my life, mm-hmm. well, then that's restricted. I'm practicing discernment. You're, if if you're living a lifestyle that's inconsistent with what I believe the Bible teaches, you're not going to be in my inner circle. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I can still love you and I can still be a part of your life and still bless you. You may be a family member and that family member may be even closer to the inner circle in my life just because they're connected to me familially. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to my own understanding of counsel and wisdom and making decisions for my life, you're not going to be consulted. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That's me practicing discernment. Mm So you're going to be held at arm's length at some places in my life, but in others, you're going to be warmly embraced because I'm going to love you and encourage you and do my best to be a part of your life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I do that all the time. I'm not saying it's easy, you know, because, you know, if you've, we, we have family members that um, I disagree with their lifestyle, mm-hmm. but it's not like, that's not the first point of conversation. In fact, mm-hmm. it's never the first point of conversation, really. Mm-hmm. There's so many other parts of life that we share that, you know, it's only a part of the conversation when it has to be, I mm-hmm. guess is what I'd say. So what would you say to someone who says, like, only God can judge me? That's, you know, that's just a pop, a pop phrase yeah. that I see. Yeah, I would say that's absolutely incorrect. Everybody judges you. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, th- if you believe that, then you're, yeah. in a, you're living in Maybe a fantasy world. only God should judge me. Right. Yeah. Now, only, only God's going to judge your eternity. I would yeah. agree with that. But you get judged every day. It's kind of like when I first started teaching, uh, preaching at Truett Seminary, I had a student come to me one day after their sermon, and I gave them a critique. And he just said, you know what, this is so, this is ridiculous. He said, I don't believe in this. I said, what do you mean? He said, critiquing sermons. He said, who's going to critique my sermons when I start preaching in the church? Mm. I said, everybody. Every single person. (laughs) Every Sunday. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) but um, yeah, everybody judges you. That's just part of life. But yeah, I think discernment is a skill. I believe the Holy Spirit is part of it. But, but you know, I guess what I'd say, Katie, when I think about relating to people without condemning them, conversations without condemnation, mm-hmm. my goodness, I, I want to, I mean, I want to believe we're mature enough to do that. I just think we don't have, we don't have a lot of good role models out there right now. Mm-hmm. Our culture is so loud. It's, it's, it's that uh, it's just hard to find examples of it. Um, and so we need more mature Christians modeling it in our churches. So in other words, you need to live in community in the church. Mm-hmm. So that's our third bullet point. So that you're not yeah. just being taught by the role models that are out in our culture. So what do you because, mean by, in, by community? Well, I would say you want to live in relationships with people within the church, with people who are maturing disciples who are on the same path with you. They may be a little ahead of you. They may be a little behind you, mm-hmm. but their whole desire in life is not to just 
change you to where you're just like them. Their whole desire in life is not to be on some kind of crusade to take over the world. It's to truly just follow Jesus and do it in our everyday lives and just learn how to live that out. Go to dinner and come over to my house and let's talk about how we do this. And let's let's just be in community together and let's worship together and let's pray together and let's study the Bible together and let's 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 share the gospel together. Let's participate in the mission of God together. Let's raise our gaze above some of these things that are disagreed about in our culture and participate in taking care of the poor mm-hmm. and um, in caring for the widowed and and addressing some of the ills of our society that that are true ills that that may have moral implications but they also have an impact on how everybody lives every single day of their life i mean mm-hmm. if there's food scarcity should i not be concerned about that in arlington just as much as i'm concerned about moral decay what well, i would hope so mm-hmm. you know so when you live in community then you rub up against other people and you find about real needs and you just learn how to live in the midst of this tension sometimes of disagreeing about some things, but having radical agreement on most things. Mm-hmm. And man, you can, you know, you can you can grow a lot in those relationships. And I believe this thing's supposed to be lived out relationally, not just doctrinally. Mm-hmm. You know, the doctrine is the skeleton, as I said, but the relationships are part of the flesh that's mm-hmm. on those bones. Mm-hmm. And so, living in authentic community, realizing that there are some people. Who who um, who have real needs that are very different than yours? It it just it broadens you as a person, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas if you live in isolation, or if you only live in um, in very strict homogenous communities, and then you surround yourself with people who only agree with what you agree with, and you live in that echo chamber and it just reverberates all the time through your system, man, what a what a narrow way to live, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to me, what uh, I think about what you miss out on, I, I think about how my life has been enriched by the church as I've lived in community with people when I found myself hurting or in need and they've been there with me and I have, I've, I've been able to return that favor for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. It just adds texture and richness to your life. Mm-hmm. And the church is the place to do that because mm-hmm. we're gathered around the mission of God. We're not just gathered, we're gathered around the mission of God. It gives you life purpose. You know, so. so for those listening, a great invitation to lean in a little bit. And we mm-hmm. do have, I mean, we have lots of ways to do that at mm-hmm. our church. I think our Bible studies are still some of the best ways to Absolutely. make real community. Mm-hmm. And they really, the people have lifelong mm-hmm. friends from those. But we also have women's ministry and men's ministry. Yes. And they do a lot of eating around the table. Yes. Sharing life. Yes. For Here's sure. the plug Apples of Gold, which is our women's dinner club. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. about to start again. Mm-hmm. And our men's ministry has mm-hmm. monthly Bible studies, but also, I don't know, quarterly, frequently, they eat meals together and mm-hmm. share life. They do. Breakfasts. So yeah. There are lots of ways. I mean, and I'm just naming if you if you volunteer in an area, man, that's you're right. really in, and that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of mm-hmm. ways. And getting involved in the missional life of the church, yeah. you know, getting yeah. connected to things that are beyond you. I mean, as a, as a member of First Baptist Arlington, mm-hmm. God, God has given you many, many ways to live in community with other people. And at a church our size, really, if there's a passion you have or something that you like and mm-hmm. are good at, we probably have a way to Absolutely. use that for the community, yep. to be part of community. So, mm-hmm. Okay, the last thing. Everybody take a breath. We're going to keep going. Here, here, okay. Here's some. Um, <laughs> none of these are labeled, so I never quite know what we're getting into. Uh, okay, I'll leave that one on. Uh, the last thing that I want to talk about, and I want you to explain it, because you talk about this, and I think it's very relevant to this conversation mm-hmm. in terms of how then do we live as people, but this, you talk about a free church mm-hmm. in a free state. Correct. Can you put on your historian hat and just kind of help us understand what that is? Right. Well, if you think about the history of Christianity, um, Christianity was birthed in a, in a real context in the first century, and in the first century in the Greco-Roman world, um, uh, the... the um, government was an imperial government. So you had an emperor in Rome. Mm-hmm. Now, 
you also had people living in the east who weren't ruled by the Romans. So you've got a you've got a pretty significant population of the world that that would not have been true of. But they were living under 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 other imperial forms of mm-hmm. government. Um, but the Western world um, was was uh, living in the imperial government. And, uh, and that's going to actually be the case for hundreds of years, of course. So the church is birthed into that context. Originally, the church is persecuted, okay? So the church has to grow, proclaim its message in a less than friendly environment, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So how did that how did that go? Well, the church actually prospered pretty well. You know, yeah. the church grew, and mm-hmm. and it was is almost like you uh, you know Tertullian is the one who said that the 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 blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. In mm-hmm. other words, it, it was like the more Christians you killed, the more of them there were. And even <laughs> yeah. in modern day, yeah. in modern day global yeah. Christianity, Correct. still happening. Those that are persecuted, yes. it like the, the church the is underground thriving. Church in the Middle East, it is, is thriving. thriving. Yep. and and having the right conversations. Mm-hmm. That's what happens, you know, with the persecuted church. You think it you, clarifies the mission? Absolutely. It, it takes you, know, you down to the, what it, really matters. And it basically, um, you don't have many hangers on. Hmm. These are core people because yeah. their lives are at stake. Yeah. You kind of trim the fat, as That's Barbara right. Brown Taylor would That's say. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, then Constantine basically takes over the empire. Things begin to change, and uh, the Act of Toleration, AD 313. And uh, then eventually, Christianity is going to be not just tolerated, but it's going to be favored. And so um, Constantine makes a lot of decisions that, that we still live with today. You know, like he chose to quit taxing the churches. Their land was no longer taxable. Mm-hmm. Um, the clergy as well. Um, he actually even gave them the, the option of not serving in the military, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <clears throat> um, so then, you know, if you if you make your way through history, the church lives essentially in, in what I would call a favored status. And then because Constantine ruled the empire from the east, not the west, he moved the capital to Constantinople, you know, <laughs> named the city after himself. Yeah. Humble, um, humble guy. Yes, yeah, right. Um, well, so you no longer had an emperor in the west. And so eventually the most important person who lived in Rome was the pastor of the church. And uh, by the time you get to about 600. And so Gregory, would I would say, was the first pope. Mm-hmm. He was um, a brilliant theologian, wonderful pastor, but he also had a lot of political abilities. Mm-hmm. And so eventually the Pope in Rome became not just the leader of the church. He actually became more like a king, if you will. Well, again, so the church has favored status. Then you come through the era of the Reformation, and there's more persecution, if you will. And then eventually as the Reformation unfolds, nations made decisions about churches. And so some of those nations decided they would just have their own church, Mm -hmm. and it would be a state church, a church that's sponsored by the state. Uh, So that means when you're born into the into the state, then you're also born into the church. And there's a lot of uh, just merging together, if you will. It gets a little um, challenging. So uh, we're seeing an example of that right now. I actually live down in front of us. Mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth has just died. So yeah. Prince Charles is now King Charles. Well, when King Charles will be crowned as the king, he'll be crowned king by the Archbishop of Canterbury mm-hmm. because he not only is going to be the king of, of Great Britain and the Commonwealth, he will also be the head of the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the titular head of the Anglican Church because there's a state church in England. It's the Church of England. Uh, we'd call it the Episcopal Church in America. And so, well, we have examples of state churches um, in various places across the world. We also have had a history of persecuted churches. But then we also have the church existing in places where um, they don't really have favored status, may not necessarily be persecuted, but they don't have favored status. Mm-hmm. 
and their limitations based upon their abilities. Such as? Um, well, say like, for example, let's say that uh, that you're living in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia tells us we don't technically persecute Christians. Okay. What they mean by that is as long as you're not a Saudi Arabian converting out of Islam into the church. So Saudi Arabia you can exist as like a Westerner. Correct. I can as a move Westerner. To Saudi Arabia. If you, if you and I were to, if we were to take our families, let's say the Wileses and the Hodgeses and a bunch mm-hmm. of us moved to Saudi Arabia, we could have a church and we would be free. We just can't proselytize. Correct. Okay. We just couldn't, we, 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 we we're not in a free state. On their That's right. Okay. So there are numerous examples of that across the world. Mm-hmm. However, um, the United States was built um, on a different model. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at our constitution, uh, the constitution itself was never actually ratified by the states because it had to be amended first. And so it was amended with the original, what we call the Bill of Rights. And the very first one of those rights that's stated in the First Amendment is that Congress is not going to make any laws establishing religion and it's not going to prohibit the free exercise of religion. So those two clauses, establishment and free exercise, mm. basically bury in the ground in America the seeds of religious liberty. That means that the people in America are going to be free to practice their faith and Congress is not going to prohibit or hinder the free exercise of it and Congress is not going to establish one of them as the favorite. In other words, we're not going to go, not going to wake up one morning and Congress is going to say, you know, I think the Baptists are actually right. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the official Church of America. No, that's a violation of the First Amendment. Although we've had people creeping toward that. Correct. And I don't want to get too political on here is not the point. Some people probably like it to be that way, but that's just not how it is. Well, people were saying it out loud. I mean, that we ought to. Right. So that's just not the point. So even if you said America is a Christian nation, that's even a false statement. You would really have to do a lot of um, uh, finagling, my mama mm-hmm. would say, <laughs> to make that statement true. Yeah. Because today, Thomas Jefferson wouldn't even be considered a Christian. So to say that, it, and he wrote the Constitution. Right. So more to a, say we're a Christian a deist, nation, yeah. yeah. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, but nevertheless, great people, though, great minds. My goodness. I mean, sure. We're, we're all the but beneficiaries. But they were establishing this reality. That's for right. Us, these right? were, these were, these were political scientists mm-hmm. and, and some of the greatest ones ever. So what they start is a free, society where we actually can, we, we have free speech, which is guaranteed. We have freedom of the press, guaranteed. It's a free society. Mm-hmm. You're free to think for yourselves. You're free to write, express your beliefs, you know, as long as obviously they're not, you know, it's not harmful. They don't encroach on Correct. someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then also in the midst of that, a free church. So the church can worship uh, as it chooses and the people of God can proselytize. They can preach, they can teach, they can engage in public discourse and and rule themselves and in the state basically is hands off so if you have very rarely does a state ever enter in any kind of lawsuit that involves a church it's very rare it happens mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. but you'll notice whenever you see it happening how reluctant the state is to do that because this is a free society with a free church so the church exists in freedom the society exists in freedom so here's the interesting thing it's never really happened in history mm. And it's certainly never happened on a scale where you have a nation of 300 million people. Mm-hmm. That's just never occurred before. And so the question is, how does the church live in that? Is the church um, robust enough? Does the church believe it's that it's a message in the marketplace of ideas is robust enough to live there without favored status? Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's where the challenge is, and that's what we're facing today. The reason it's more of a challenge today than it has been in the past, in my opinion, because you're asking me. Um, sure, yep. Historically, there's been enough 
of the majority of, of and here's another interesting thing about America. Not only is it a free church and a free state, it's been predominantly a free Protestant church and a free mm-hmm. state. That's also something that has not existed because almost everywhere else in the world where there's been a large church expression has been Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. Mm-hmm. We're the largest expression of a Protestant majority. So think about it. This church, this this country established seventeen seventy six. You have to go all the way to nineteen sixty before you ever get a Catholic even elected president. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is a Protestant society. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, again, another very interesting experiment. But in times past, though, there was enough of the majority will, if you want to call it that, to where there's always been kind of this veneer of of religion uh, that 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 exists um, in our culture. So Christians have felt a favored place, even if it wasn't guaranteed them in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, when I was a kid growing up playing Little League Baseball, there would never have been a game on Sunday. Hmm. Not because it was illegal. Right. They had nothing to do with it. It's just that the community wouldn't have stood for it. Mm-hmm. You, you just you just couldn't have done it. Yeah, it, it wasn't yeah. unconstitutional. That's right. <laughs> it just was what it we just, did. It just huh? wouldn't have happened because mm-hmm. the just the um, the pressure— of the majority Christian culture just would not have stood for mm-hmm. it. Um, you had blue laws when I was a kid growing up. In other words, you couldn't buy alcohol in Birmingham, Alabama, anywhere until afternoon on Sunday. You had to get out of church first. Mm-hmm. It was just it was just a statement of respect, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this veneer of of this kind of uh, cultural religion, if mm-hmm. you will. Interesting that you use the word veneer. Yeah, that that was aimed toward Christianity. Just plain and simple. In other words, um, you didn't have a, a cultural expression of religion that was Muslim. Mm-hmm. That just did not exist. Okay, yeah. It was predominantly Christian. And so kind of on the surface of the culture. Now, you had enough. You had obviously authentic Christians living this out mm-hmm. that influenced this. So I don't want to minimize that. But what I'm saying is there was a veneer, though, of protection. Yeah. So what's happened over time is that veneer has worn really thin mm-hmm. and probably no longer really exists. Yeah. And so that somewhat favored status that we've experienced and somewhat enjoyed, if you want to call it that, has disappeared in mm-hmm, this era. Mm-hmm. So now, so now what? Now it can be, it, for those who are old enough to remember it, it feels like something's slipping between our fingers mm. and and you can't get it anymore. You can't grasp it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so then the culture has matured to... Not only has the church had to mature in this, the culture has, so the society's matured to start making decisions based upon true freedom, not necessarily guided by religion. Mm-hmm. So that creates a, uh, a tension, if you will, mm-hmm. that I think is is somewhat new for us. And so we have to decide how to live in it. So case in point, 2015, the Supreme Court says, okay, marriage, actually, um, historically, it's always been between a man and a woman. The Supreme Court decides actually same-sex couples get married, all 50 states mm-hmm. and the District of Columbia. And and there is nothing you can do about it. It is the law of the land. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there's an example of the society kind of maturing right alongside of us, flexing its muscles of freedom, is just like the church has done. Mm-hmm. So now we're in a position of, okay, well, how does the church exist in that? Mm-hmm. To where you no longer have any kind of real favored status, you're just existing equally in a culture that has multiple voices. But here's what happened, Katie. We planted the seeds of liberty. If you plant the seeds of liberty, the fruit is going to be plurality. Hmm. It just is. 
And so we're now long enough into this experience where the society's gotten incredibly pluralistic. So some people's answer to that is to squeeze it more tightly, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and somehow force it into a mold. I just don't believe that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, coercion to me is not the answer. I think conversion is the answer, which in other words, it means that we have got to learn how to articulate the gospel for this culture, not for the ones that our parents and grandparents lived in. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's on us now yep. to, to live in this society as a free church. So. I don't know if that's a, that's kind of a long explanation, but we ask you to tell us more. Okay, and you did. <laughs> well, I think I think it's fascinating, and I think mm-hmm. you're, I think it's a good read on society mm-hmm. and Christian culture, mm-hmm. but also and we just live in an interesting reality. Mm-hmm. Where we have to know our core convictions mm-hmm. and be ourselves, but we might mm-hmm. not be able to influence. That's right. Policy. We're not going to enforce them sometimes. No. You still. The cool thing is, you get to vote. Mm-hmm. You're in a free society. Yeah. And so, if there's a certain political perspective that you disagree with, well, you can. You can vote against it. Mm-hmm. However, you live in a free society that is a democratic republic, so we've got representative leadership. So when a decision is made, it becomes the law of the land. Then we have to decide whether to live with it or practice civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. But civil disobedience needs to be rooted in core Christian convictions, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And so got to be thoughtful about that mm-hmm. before you engage in it. Yeah. Hmm. Good challenge. Mm-hmm. Oh Anger gosh. is not enough. There it is. Anger is not enough of a justification for civil disobedience. It's not enough to be mad about something. You know, it's got to it's got to conflict no, it has with to be our a true conviction. Kind of. mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and that's when Jesus got angry, like you said earlier. That's right. Well, my gosh, Dennis Walls, <laughs> we've gone through a lot of it, and I think we've it's probably the longest one we've done. There's two podcasts. No, no, they, they people have. People have the capacity mm-hmm. to sit through. I hope this. so. I hope so. Well, they can always pause it and come mm-hmm. back. Go get a snack. Listen to something more entertaining <laughs> and then come back. That's, That's right. fine. So, well, I do thank y'all for joining us. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting walk through First Corinthians, but it's good for us. Mm-hmm. It makes us think. And we don't all have to agree, mm-hmm. but we do need to live in compassionate community together as a church. So. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, Ross. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Tell Me More podcast today. You can subscribe to this podcast on your app of choice, or you can visit us at fbca.org to find out more information about the podcast and our church. Thanks for listening.